We considered the book of Joshua as a whole uh, last Lord's Day morning as part of our celebration of the first Sunday in Advent. The taking of the promised land, we said, was an anticipation of the coming of the Lord, especially the second coming, since the promised land in the Bible is a type or embodied prophecy of heaven itself. Now we begin our consideration of the book paragraph by paragraph. But before we do, a word about the structure of the book of Joshua. It'll help us to appreciate its parts if we know something about the book as a whole. Joshua has four main sections. A recent study by a Dutch scholar argues that each of the four sections is marked by a key word. As you may remember, it was the Jewish scholar Martin Buber uh, many years ago who first pointed out that it was characteristic of the authors of the books of the Hebrew Bible to identify their themes in a day before titles or tables of contents, to identify their themes by the use of key words. Since Buber was German, he referred to that word as a Leitwort, that is a leading word. According to this new study, the Leitwort of the first section of Joshua is the verb to cross, which we find first in verse 2, where the ESV renders it go over. So the first section of the book, from the beginning to chapter 5, verse 12, is about crossing the Jordan into the promised land. That word cross is found 26 times in the first section. The light word of the second section of the book is take, the Hebrew verb take. For the section from 513 to 224 narrates Israel's taking of the land of Canaan. The light word of the third section is the Hebrew word for divide or allot, since from 13.1 to 21.45 we read of the land being divided among the tribes of Israel. The light word of the fourth and final section of the book from 22.1 to the end of 24 is the verb to serve, which occurs some 16 times in the final chapter alone. Each section has a distinct conclusion, further indicating that the book does indeed neatly divide into these four sections. Section one concludes with the reinstatement of the people of God, the end of God's provision of manna, and the celebration of the Passover for the first time in 38 years and for the first time ever in the promised land. Section two concludes with a summary of all the kings and all the peoples and all the lands that Israel took uh, in her conquest of Canaan. Section 3 ends with a ringing affirmation that God has been as good as his word in giving to Israel the promised land. And section 4 and the book as a whole end with the statement that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. What's interesting about these four sections is that the first three begin emphatically with the Lord, with Yahweh taking the initiative at God's command and with God's help, Israel crossed the Jordan, took the land, divided it into tribal allotments. The fourth section, however, does not begin with the divine initiative. Instead, Joshua takes the initiative, calling on Israel to serve the Lord. In other words, the structure 
provides us with the Bible's understanding of the Christian faith and life in a nutshell. We love him because he first loved us. We have been saved to serve. Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Now, as you notice, the book begins as a continuation of an ongoing narrative. We read of the death of Moses in the final chapter of Deuteronomy, just across the page, and Joshua picks up the story at that point. It's worth reminding you at the outset that in virtually every English translation of the Bible, Lord is used to translate the personal name of the Lord, the name most scholars today think was pronounced Yahweh or something close to that. Yahweh doesn't mean Lord. It's a name. So Lord is not an actual translation. It is, in fact, a substitution. As long ago the Jews substituted the Hebrew noun Adonai, which means Lord or Master, uh, for Yahweh in a superstitious effort to avoid pronouncing the divine name for fear of being guilty of misusing it. Given that the Lord revealed his name to his people, told them that this is what they are to call him, given that the name occurs thousands of times in the Old Testament, it is passing strange to me that translations executed by Bible-believing scholars, by any biblical scholar for that matter, should continue to practice this contrivance. But they all do. This would be akin to saying angel every time the names Gabriel or Michael appeared in the biblical narrative. We'd never say Gabriel, we'd never say Michael, we'd just say angel instead. What's the point of having a name? What's the point of telling someone what your name is if no one ever uses the name in speaking about you or to you? As we said last time, Joshua means Yahweh saves. The Jah of Joshua is simply Yah, the, the first syllable of Yahweh, the short form of Yahweh. The Greek form of this Hebrew name, as most of you will remember, is Jesus. We already know Joshua, of course, by this time from Exodus and from Numbers and Deuteronomy as Moses' first assistant or most important aide. And also as one of the twelve spies, one of the two, along with Caleb, who brought back an encouraging report when the twelve were sent to reconnoiter the land and assess the military challenges some 38 years before this. So, he said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over, across this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now, you'll notice throughout this opening paragraph the Hebrew penchant for thinking and writing in extremes. The word all appears eight times in these nine verses. All the people, all the places, all the law, all the land, all the days, and so on. It occurs six more times in the remainder of the chapter. 
Scholars also point out that the phraseology of these first nine verses, phrase after phrase after phrase, is drawn directly from Deuteronomy. It's a way of emphasizing the continuity between Moses and Joshua and the continuing authority of God's law. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Now, you'll notice the accent is falling on the fact that the Lord is giving Israel the land. And notice the tenses of the verbs in verses 2 and 3. I am giving and I have given. Israel doesn't yet possess the land, but she already holds title to it. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You will cause this people, he says to Joshua. I will give them the land. God's sovereign power and will and plan, together with our responsibility. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will, be, uh, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Our Father in heaven, marvelous, marvelous words from the mouth of God. To us this morning, help us, O oh God, to take them to heart, understand their implications for our life each day. Sanctify us in truth. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the Bible verses you learn as a child stick with you better than others. Often that is because you have cause to use them more often, to recite them to yourself or to others. One such verse for me was Joshua 1.9. Of course, I learned it in the King James Version. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. When I was a boy... There was no electric power in our mountain valley in Colorado. We had electric lights and running water only when the gasoline generator was running. The generator was located in the pump house down the hill by the stream. The generator on one side of that little shed, the pump on the other. We only ran the generator from time to time because it used gasoline that had to be carried from the city. And, of course, it would be turned off at bedtime. That was often my job. 
It's dark, very dark when night falls in the mountains, especially if there is no moon. I would walk down the hill uh, to the pump house because there was a light outside the door, and while the generator was running, the light illuminated the surrounding area. But as soon as I turned off the generator, the world became pitch black. And not only that, there was suddenly, at least in the imagination of an eight or a nine-year-old boy, a mountain lion or a bear or a murderer behind every tree and bush. I would... I walked down the hill, but I ran back up the hill, reciting Joshua 1.9 all the way. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And here I am today with nary a scar from an encounter with a wild beast or a criminal intent on doing me bodily harm. This is a verse that works. <laughs> That there was something necessary about this exhortation to be strong and courageous is indicated not only by the fact that it's repeated three times in this opening paragraph, but as well by the fact that Moses exhorted Joshua with the very same words, be strong and courageous, three times in Deuteronomy 31. The reason... Joshua and Israel must be strong and courageous would at first glance seem to be that the land is populated by strong and warlike peoples, that there were a number of walled cities, by definition not easy to conquer. Israel would have to win battles, and battles with people whose reputation had gone before them. When the spies reported back after their foray into Canaan, you remember, ten of the twelve men, and those would have been brave men. Those would have been powerful, strong men, the warrior type of man. Ten of those twelve men had concluded that the Canaanites were simply too much for Israel. Some of that fear, some of that insecurity, must no doubt have remained in the back of Joshua's mind and the minds of the people. But the emphasis here falls instead on the importance of obedience to God. The Lord will give Israel the land. The people of the land shouldn't be Israel's concern. Obeying the Lord is going to be what tells the tale. It isn't the resolve of the Canaanites to defend their land against an invader or their military prowess that ought to be Israel's worry. The Lord says in verse 5, no one will be able to stand before you. No, what should concern Joshua and Israel is Israel's own potential lack of resolve to be faithful to the Lord, to keep his commandments, to be holy as the Lord is holy. You will have noticed perhaps the repetition of this commandment to be strong and courageous in verses 6 and 7. In the first instance, be strong and courageous seems to refer to the requirement of courage in battle. Don't be afraid of your enemies because the Lord will give them into your hand. That seems to be the point. But in verse 7, be strong and courageous refers explicitly to Israel's obedience to the law of God. In this way, the Lord relates Israel's resolve to take the land from its powerful inhabitants to Israel's resolve to keep the commandments of the law of Moses. The promised land would be God's gift, to be sure, 
As we're going to see as we read through the book, the Lord will fight for Israel and it will be the Lord who defeats her enemies. But as with many of God's gifts, to receive them requires commitment, loyalty, faithfulness, and obedience on our part. You know Maltby Babcock as the author of the beloved hymn, This is My Father's World. He has another poem, the first verse of which reads, Be strong. We are not here to play, to dream, to drift. We have hard work to do and loads to lift. Shun not the struggle. Face it. Tis God's gift. God gave Israel the land by bringing her into battles. He enabled her to win. Some Israelite soldiers would die in battle, to be sure. Others would be wounded. The Lord's promise to give Israel the land was not a promise to give it to her with no effort or sacrifice required on her part. We're not given the statistics of Israelite killed and wounded in battle, but no doubt there were many fewer of them than Canaanites killed or wounded in the many battles that the conquest of Canaan would require. But still, battles had to be fought, and in those days, battle was hand-to-hand. You went into battle afraid. Anyone would. Afraid of the soldiers coming to meet you, afraid of the spear point, afraid of the sword, afraid of death. Be strong and courageous. Makes perfect sense, does it not, as advice to a commander and to his army as they are about to take on a resolute and warlike enemy who are fighting for their very lives? We, of course, are not poised to invade a foreign land. We're not facing hand-to-hand combat as Joshua and Israel were at this moment in their history. So the question comes naturally, Does this exhortation to be strong and courageous apply to us as well today? Are you and I being given the same orders that Joshua and Israel were given as they prepared to cross the Jordan into Canaan? Is there a message for for us here? And the answer is, of course there is. We are as much in need of strength and courage as they were. We too have adversaries, obstacles to overcome. We too are often beset with fears. We, too, need to remember that God is with us. And we certainly need to remember how vital it is for our success and prosperity, as the Bible defines success and prosperity, that we keep the commandments of God. Consider the Christians who much later um, had a letter written to them in the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews. They weren't military men. They weren't planning an invasion. They hadn't to be bucked up in the prospect of facing a powerful enemy in hand-to-hand combat. But what does the author write to them? For he, that is the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Doesn't that sound very much Like what we read here, both the exhortation not to fear and the reasons for it. For thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Think of all the things that we fear, that you are afraid of, that we fail to do because we are afraid. We don't open our mouths 
to say something to the credit of the Lord Jesus Christ, something about his salvation, because we're afraid of what others might think of us if we were to do so. There's a wonderful testimony in the most recent number of Christianity Today. A Mormon woman, a professor of education at BYU, had raised her children to be faithful Mormons. Her son, like many a loyal Mormon young man, went off on a two-year mission. But three weeks before his stint was to end, he was sent home, something his mother writes was a horrible disgrace in Mormon culture. He had been reading the New Testament, and in that reading he had encountered a different Jesus than the one Mormonism had taught him. To a room full of missionaries at his parting testimony, this young man had professed faith in Jesus Christ and not in the Mormon church. It did not go over well. He was expelled from the church. His family prevented his formal excommunication by hustling him onto a plane out of Utah. But as he boarded the plane, he pled with his parents, read the New Testament. They did, and the rest, as we say, is history. That young man was strong and courageous, was he not, to open his mouth to confess Jesus Christ in a group of people he knew would not take kindly to his words. When he knew full well that dire consequences were likely to ensue for him and that he might even bring disgrace upon his family. But that's but one way in which we can find ourselves afraid. There are many others. We can be afraid to share our struggles with others. We fear that they will look down on us or perhaps resent us for the implication that we want their help, their encouragement, their prayer or their support. We're afraid of missing out on something that we want or long for. And so we stew through our lives. We're afraid of the unknown of the future. Some of us fear for our children, for our health, for our marriage, for our job. We can certainly be afraid of other people and what they might do and how that might affect us or those we love. And of course, from time to time, we fear God himself, not in the good way of reverence and awe, but fear his anger, his punishment, his becoming annoyed with or tired of us. And of course, we are afraid of death. Virtually everyone, at least most of the time, is afraid of death and would rather remain in this world no matter how difficult or unhappy his or her life might be. As Achilles said to Ulysses when they met in the underworld, say not a word in death's favor. I would rather be a paid servant in a poor man's house and be above ground than king of kings among the dead. Is that the, not the way most of us think? Most of the time, if not all of the time? Toad up this these fears and add other fears and there is a great deal of fear in our lives. Christians may be told many times in the Bible to fear not, that we do not need to be afraid in these ways, but we struggle to be strong and courageous. It's natural for us to worry. We find it very easy to be afraid precisely because the strength and the courage that we read about in the opening verses of Joshua is an exercise of faith. And to live by faith is a difficult thing. Indeed, it is the most difficult thing in the world, which is why so very few people do it well. It takes faith. 
to live in the serene confidence that God is with us when we can't see Him. It takes faith to believe that the only thing we really need to worry about, that we need to be concerned about, is that we are faithful to God's Word and obedient to His commandments when there seem to be so many other things to worry about. It takes faith to believe that God will give us what we need according to the measure He thinks best, which measure must be the best when there are so many things we would like to have and like to have now. But as Joshua will dramatically remind us, and again and again, the Lord was with Israel. He did give her the promised land. She needn't have feared the people of Canaan, for their armies were no match for the Lord of hosts. And the only thing, that proved to be of vital importance so far as Israel's success was concerned was her obedience to God. Her soldiers weren't bigger, stronger, or faster than the soldiers of the Canaanite tribes. We never read that. Joshua wasn't a much more clever general than the Canaanite armies had ever faced before. We never read that either. Israel's weapons weren't generations in advance of those used by the Canaanites. We never read that. Everyone was using the same bows, spears, and swords. But Yahweh fought for Israel and against the Canaanites. And that made the outcome of every battle a foregone conclusion. I read the other day about a woman, an older woman, who drove her son's car from Michigan to California to help him make a move there for a job, a new job. It was Christmas time, and the plan was that her husband would fly to California, meet her there, they would enjoy the holiday together as a family, and then the two of them, father and mother, would fly home to Michigan. Just before she was to leave, however, she fell and broke her wrist. Despite the cast on her left arm, she decided she could still make the trip, and so off she drove across most of the country. Several days later in the West, she felt so tired uh, that she pulled off the road uh, and took a nap. And then shortly after that, she stopped at a restaurant for a cup of coffee to wake herself up. At the restaurant, a man, a stranger, came up to her and asked if she were the woman who had been driving the Ford Explorer with Michigan license plates. She agreed that she was, and he explained that a number of men had been looking for her. Somewhere in Indiana, near the beginning of her long trip, a truck driver had noticed this little white-haired lady with a cast on her left arm driving down the highway away from her home because gathered that from the fact that the car was um, adorned with Michigan plates and they were already in Indiana. As the miles passed, he kept an eye on her. She obviously seemed to be traveling a long way. And when he left the highway, he radioed ahead to other truckers to take up the watch. And day by day, utterly unbeknownst to her, she had been passed on from one 
truck driver to another, each taking his turn at looking out for the little white-haired lady with the cast on her left arm who was driving a Ford Explorer with Michigan license plates. When she pulled off the highway to take a nap, they had lost track of her. And a number of drivers, alerted by radio, had been looking for her car until finally one spotted it in the restaurant parking lot. They had been near to calling the police. She'd been blithely unaware that for almost her entire trip, someone had kept her in view. Indeed, a small army of someone's. She hadn't been alone at all, though she didn't know it. What a perfect picture of us so often unaware or at least unconscious of the fact that someone is looking out for us. The Lord has made many great and precious promises to us, and he is as good as his word. We took note last time of the fact that he fulfills his promises in his own time, and that may require us to wait even a long time for their fulfillment, but not one of his promises has ever failed, and many of them, including many of the most utterly unlikely of them, have been magnificently fulfilled and once and for all. Israel did gain the promised land, a completely unlikely thing, humanly speaking, when that promise was first uttered to Abraham 600 years before. The Messiah did come. He did suffer and die for our sins. He did rise from the dead. He did return to his Father. And surely after that, who is going to doubt that he will come again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him? What is more, he is with us always, whithersoever we go. The Lord promised Joshua that. He reiterated it many times in those portions of his word written after the book of Joshua. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. That's Psalm 139. And so important is the divine presence with God's people and so important is it that they remember this. That Jesus himself made a point of emphasizing it by making it one of the last things he said to his disciples. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not our inheritance to live in fear, but to live in the confidence of God's presence with us, the certainty of his promises, and the simplicity of our lives. That is, All we really have to concern ourselves with is being faithful to the Lord and to his commandments. He will do the rest. People are usually either sympathetic or strong. They are rarely both at the same time. But what those who are afraid of crave are both of those things at once. What the Lord gives us, and only he, is both company and companionship with sympathy on the one hand and 
the help we need. So be strong and courageous finally means simply live like someone who has the Lord at his or her right hand, the Lord of promise and the Lord of power. Amen.